ESPN LA, Kamenetsky Brothers Podcast, Andy Kamenetsky, uh, Brian unable to be here, which is very disappointing to him because he really wanted to be a part of this interview. My guest was a former colleague of mine at the LA Times, uh, both covering the NBA, the Lakers, the Clippers. He's since gone on the write for Grantland, now Bleacher Report. He is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Boys Among Men, about ver- the various paths of high school kids who jumped straight to the NBA. His new book is a much-anticipated, very big deal. It is called All the Pieces Matter, The Inside Story of the Wire. It's an oral history of what many consider the greatest television show ever, certainly of the 21st century. It's gotten a lot of wonderful reviews. It is a terrific read. Very happy to be joined by Jonathan Abrams. Jonathan, man, how are you? Good. So what's the deal? Did Brian Hare was coming on and then he just bailed? He was intimidated, man. A two-time uh, <laughs> New York Times best-selling author, man. I mean, that, that's a little much for Brian. Or maybe he was just bored. <laughs> uh, Brian, we miss you. Uh, I'll be sure be back to, soon. I'll be sure to pass along your best, man. So uh, how did this book come about? What What was the genesis of it? So... Honestly, like, I wish I could take credit for it, but it was my literary agent's idea. He came to me with it, and I couldn't say yes fast enough. Um, we had been looking for something to do after after the High School to Pro book, and he presented this, and we went to David Simon and asked if it was okay and got his blessing and went from there. Is there, I mean, once you get the okay to do this book and, and you realize it's a reality, is there anything about it that's sort of intimidating? Just knowing that this is a show with a passionate following, people really care about it, and you're being entrusted to put the entire run and its legacy in perspective. Yeah, I mean, I think back about it now and think about all the things that had to fall into place for this thing to be successful. I mean, I went into it, and even though I had David Simon's okay, it was like, okay, I still need to figure out how to be able to get Idris Elba to say yes for an interview and Michael B. Jordan and down the line, you can think about all the prominent actors who were on that show. So I think that was the most intimidating aspect. That And and once, you know, some of those chips fell, then I knew, okay, I had a book, I can excel. Yeah, because I mean, I know my reaction would be like, oh my God, I'm writing an oral history of The Wire to, oh, crap i'm writing an oral history of the wire like this is insane no i mean you it was so much fun to be able to to talk to these guys because it's it's a different experience like you you cover and write about the nba for so long but not that these guys aren't you know still superstars but it's like you view these people more as humans you know you talk to them so much so getting out of that territory that's so familiar and walking into an unknown and being able to report about a show that I have so much deep respect for that that was fun now as it turns out hearing you hearing you discuss the book in other interviews getting David Simon's blessing to do the book wasn't that difficult to task yeah it was it was funny because it just wrote him an email uh, just basically saying you know what I thought about the show and what I hope to accomplish with this oral history. And he had like a one sentence reply saying like, okay, you can do whatever. Just don't bother me. Basically. Okay. <laughs> 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 That's crazy. I, what is it like though? Cause you eventually did talk to him a lot for the book. What's it like carrying on a conversation with him? Because I, I picture that being, very intimidating. He does not seem like somebody who suffers fools gladly. He is 
typically the smartest person in the room. He's known as, to be perfectly honest, kind of a prickly guy. Yeah, and there was there was a little bit of that, especially knowing that I had to ask him boilerplate questions, some of them uh, questions that he had obviously had presented to him a lot of times. It was it was interesting, though, because I'm obviously talking to somebody who just has a larger vocabulary than me, right? So I know that after this interview, I'm going to have to go to the dictionary and look up half of what he's talking about. <laughs> uh, but it was also good because I interviewed him so late down the road for the, and the, while I was reporting the book, I'd already talked to so many people that I was able to just pick up transcripts and say, Hey, Richard Price said this about this episode. Do you have similar thoughts or different thoughts or what do you think about that? Um, and in that way, it played well for the book because the book is almost like a, a round table feel for oral history where you, you want to feel like you have these people almost conversating at a table. Yeah, I would picture, too, given that Simon has a newspaper background, just the idea of how much research ultimately you were doing before leading the discussion to him is something that he would appreciate. Like just the idea of you've, you've researched it, you've done the homework and coming up with questions. Yeah, I mean, it's not something that he's relayed to me, but a couple of the other main writers who are on that show have since uh, read the book, and they were like, one of the things that they got out of it was that they were able to appreciate the uh, the perspectives of people that they hadn't heard from before or hadn't been able to ask those questions because, you know, if you're George Pelicanos working on the show, you're not going to necessarily ask Ed Burns what he's thinking about this particular thing at this point in time. So I think it was kind of cool for them to learn the thoughts of other people working alongside them as well. How long did it take from the moment you begin working on this to the moment the publisher tells you that you're done, it's a wrap? Uh, probably close to a couple of years. Uh, but like I said, this thing was so fun to work on that I turned it in like a month or two before the actual deadline for for when the book was due. Was there a part of you disappointed that it was done? I mean, given how enjoyable it was? There was. There was definitely. And there was, like, if if you're going to turn in a a 750-word story or, or a book, there's always going to be stuff that's going to hurt when you have to cut it out. And so there was so much stuff that hurt that I had to end up cutting out. And the book was already longer than the publisher wanted. Um, that was probably the toughest part was just editing editing it it down okay what, what are some of the favorite details or stories that you ended up ultimately having to leave out for one reason or another uh let me think of specifics because there's there was a lot uh so there's like stuff like the actor who played bunny colvin talking about the paper bag speech and everything that went into rehearsing and learning that scene uh a lot of stuff i've wound up putting on Twitter um, so it just doesn't go to waste. <laughs> uh, one of the one of the funniest things is Al Brown, the actor who played Valchek, didn't realize that Dominic West was British until the very last season of the show and it came as Seriously? To him. Yeah, because they had been on the show since the since the beginning, both of them, but that's how large that cast was. He didn't even realize it. He thought like Dominic West was just messing around and just doing a, a Shakespeare impression. Well, I mean, but they also <laughs> didn't realize it. When you, when you think about it, though, I mean, they 
I don't remember them having any scenes together. Like, you could picture them not even being on set together that often at the same time. Yeah, yeah, and that's the thing that he said. Um, and that cast was big. And it's funny, like, they basically broke it down after the show. Um, after the show ended, like, a lot of the actors broke it down that they didn't even realize that a lot of the cops hung out with cops off the screen, and a lot of the guys who played drug dealers hung out with drug dealers off the screen. Like, it, it kind of broke down into that because the other sides didn't really interact all that much. Do you recall the first time you saw the show and, and your reaction to seeing seeing The Wire for the first time? Yeah. I mean, I just remember that I've never seen anything like this before, and that's one of the big things that made me want to keep watching. It's. Do you watch Atlanta at all? Yeah, I love it. Yeah, so I get the feeling, the same feeling when I watch Atlanta. It's like, this this is beyond television. Like, I, this is just a masterpiece at work, and I've never seen anything like it. When you, when you say specifically, you've never seen anything like it before, what, what about it strikes you as so different? So I think it's a bunch of combinations for The Wire. It's seeing so many black characters on screen and having seeing all these different dimensions of them, uh, seeing black actors play not just drug dealers, but they're high up in the police force or they're the mayor or, and David Simon said that he wasn't trying to just make a quote unquote black show, but he was trying to show the Baltimore that he knew and reflect the actual demographics of the city. And that honesty, I had just never seen that before. So then that's the first thing that jumps out. Then you've never seen characters like Stringer Bell or, or Omar before. Um, all these different dimensions of these characters. And then it's just purely entertaining. The dialogue, it's witty, it's funny, it's deep. And then you watch again, and then you pick up on the messages that David Simon is trying to get out there. So I just think that there's several different ways that you can watch the show where it just hits you that it's beyond television and that this is something that you probably never seen before you watch it and you'll never see after. Yeah, the, the world is so lived in. Like, I remember the first time I saw it, it was around 2004, I think like a couple of years into the run. And the show had been on my radar, but I just hadn't gotten around to it. And I was flipping channels and I randomly landed on this scene from season one where Bubbles goes to that meeting with Johnny and he yeah. gets inspired listening to the addicts talk about their effort to get sober. And Andre Royo is so interesting. Like his choices, just facial expressions, and the world is so specific. I didn't know who he was or even if he was an important character. But I was like, oh my, if everything else on the show is this immediately arresting, it's like you you feel the need to find out what's going on with all this. Yeah, and like I just go back to thinking about the first episode, the first scene, first episode of that show where you're just immediately dropped into that world and uh, Dominic West McNulty is talking about Snot Boogie and Snot Boogie playing in this Crabs game and the whole Got To It's America line. And that is just the perfect opening scene for the show. You're immediately dropped into that world and you just immediately know that this show is doing it right. Yeah, the, watching some episodes again recently uh, before eventually having this conversation, like it really drove home just the balls that it took to introduce audiences to a show 
like not just having them watch tedious police work, you know, gathering all the pieces that matter, as Lester Freeman would say. But, and, you know, this is it's a painstaking process. But having the characters complain that what they're doing is boring, which, you know, can risk the audience find it, finding it even more boring. Like from the beginning, it's like The Wire went out of its way to dare audiences not to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. And um, George Pelicanos, one of the major writers on the show, said that they had they had a thing in the writer's room where they never wanted anybody to get up to go get a beer or go use the restroom. They didn't want their scene to be that moment where somebody said, okay, it's okay for me to leave now. So they always really, really strive to keep people eyeballs basically on the screen during that whole 60 minutes. Yeah. But, it, but at the same time though, like, you know, I, there's a interesting passage in the book uh, where Andre Arroyo who played bubbles talks about how the shield debuted around the same time as the wire. And then the shields, my all time favorite drama. And there's, I think some Venn diagram overlap in terms of themes that it hits on. And, you know, it took risks, it broke rules like The Wire, but it's still told in this more visceral way with like an eye towards pure entertainment and building audience. And like you said, even though The Wire never wanted that get up and get a beer scene, they also too was like, we're, we're not going to pander to keeping you there. We're, we're going to do this our way. Yeah, so... And that's that's interesting. Like, I'm thinking about how the show actually did this now. Because your argument is correct, and so is my argument, right? They're almost like competing arguments, but I think that they're both correct. Oh, I, I think they're both. I, I think they're totally both correct, but it, it's a high-wire act to do that. Yeah. I mean, it's almost two conflicting agendas at work right there. But The Wire was able to accomplish it. Like, I don't even, I don't even think I realized it until I was writing this book, but essentially you strip everything down. The Wire is a show about uh, drug dealers and cops, right? I mean, it's basically a show about that if you strip everything down, especially in that first season. But throughout the course of the five seasons, I think they've showed guns going off in that show maybe once or twice at most. Yeah. I mean, that's amazing. And they kept its audience. Yeah. It was a small audience at the time, but it kept its audience. Well, I mean, it just it, you you have to have, I think, just tremendous skill, but also just specificity of what you want to do. And, and you know, the, the people that were brought in to do this show knew the world that they were creating in a way that I think even a lot of really good showrunners or really good writers don't necessarily know the world that well. I mean, these people really knew it inside and out. And I think it, it sort of enabled them to be able to take – very specific risks in creating this show. Yeah. And that writer's room was really, really talented individuals all around it. I mean, they had novelists and they had David Simon and Ed Burns who had lived that world through Ed Burns being in, in the police department and, and David Simon working for the Baltimore sun for so long that they knew that world inside and out. And it, it's funny cause, um, my friend Connor, he writes for It's Always Sunny in Philadelphia, and he wanted to try to turn uh, Boys Among Men, the, the high school, the pro book, into like a Friday Night Lights type of uh, drama. So we like played around and tried to write a pilot, and I just 
could not do it well. It was almost like I was using a, a part of my brain that had never been used before. It's hard. And the fact that these guys, it, it's really, really hard. And the fact that these guys were able to do it week after week is just amazing to me. There's a great quote in in the book where Dennis Lehane, one of the writers on the show, he's a very successful author as well, said, The Wire, if mishandled, could have very easily started to feel like homework for the viewer. And it reminded me of the bad reaction that David Simon had towards the favorite character tournaments that Grantland held and, you know, the favorite character status that, you know, Omar has generally enjoyed from a lot of fans, including, you know, Barack Obama. And I get why Simon would bristle at that narrative because, you know, Omar wasn't meant to be the, like a cult hero. But at the same time, like thinking about the show, like there, I think there's a necessity to a character like Omar for a show this challenging of its audience, like some type of visceral escape, whether by accident or by design, can make things that are hard to ingest like a, a little bit easier, like, you know, like a little bit less like homework. Yeah. So you need him walking to go get Cheerios in his bathroom. Yeah. Right. You need those, you need those moments where you can chuckle a little bit because it just be, that whole world would just be too depressing or, or, uh, if you didn't have those brief moments. Yeah. Or I mean, or, you know, whistling farmer in the Dell, like you, you need stuff that just is, you know, mythology in a lot of way for, for a show that really is as challenging as anything I, I think I've ever seen become popular. Yeah, that's that whole walking that tightrope between trying to educate the viewer and trying to entertain the viewer, where you know that a certain population is just going to want to watch that show just to be purely entertained and not not really ingest any deeper issues. Yeah, um, season two, it's pretty divisive among a lot of fans, and you know, it switches up the primary characters and the plot points, switches up a lot of the racial dynamics. But what I found really interesting from the book is how it was controversial among the cast itself. Like, a lot of them were really not happy with this direction. Yeah. I mean, picture you're trying to break through your whole career, and you finally land this HBO show, and even if it's not raking in all these viewers like Sex and the City or, or Sopranos, it's it's still going, and you realize that you're doing good work and maybe it'll be appreciated one day but in the moment you're you're on hbo you've broken through so you do this first season and then it's time for the second season and wait nope everything's changed your time is drastically reduced all these new characters new people new actors are taking your screen time and it was it was argued with heavily (laughs) at the time and david david simon had to try to convince people that he had this vision and he was trying to open up the landscape of the show, but telling people that and showing people that are two different things. And I I do think that only now people are really coming to truly appreciate what happened with season two and how he was able to build that world out. Well, I mean, it's, it's really, it's a really great season. I mean, I, I, and I liked it actually from the beginning, but I know it's, you know, it's, it's labeled as the white season, which is, you know, and it's the joke that writes itself that ended up the highest rated but which is, I mean, so predictable, but it all, and I doubt it's a coincidence, but I think it just undercuts how good the season is and, and led to, I think people missing a lot of the larger points. Yeah. But it also, it also widened the scope of the audience so that even though it went back down after season two, a lot of people did still stay along 
and then they went back and watched the first season. So I feel like the the diehard audience grew a little bit because of season two. Yeah, no, I mean it really like there there's a lot thematically that you can tie to the other seasons, like you know just the the idea that it, you know it's not just about systemic racism, but you know systemic failure towards the working class and the poor and you know, the way the powerful, you know, they control the strings. And if you don't control them, you're going to get left behind. Yeah. Yeah. And trying to tell Michael K. Williams that that's what you're trying to do. (laughs) That's a little tougher in real time. Well, it's hilarious, too. I mean, all these guys really, it was very clear that they were like, wait a minute. So all of a sudden I'm getting less screen time. My story, I don't even know what's going on with me. And I just have to trust you that eventually this is going to come back around for a show that I don't even know if it's going to survive. Man. <laughs> I can't imagine being an actor and hearing that. I would just be like, oh, you got to pay me. Yeah. <laughs> you got to pay me. Well, I mean, and it turned out too, their contracts were getting restructured. I mean, there, there was a lot that they really had to trust David Simon, I guess by extension, HBO. Yeah. I mean, be funny seeing an NBA team try to do that. Yeah, good luck with that. Um, <laughs> another big takeaway for for the book uh, for me was how like pretty much nothing was improvised. Like everything was on the page, and like you see that how much they created was with like purpose and precision. Like, and it got me thinking just how like given that David Simon, you know, it comes from journalism and understands the importance of the written word, which is you know dying and certainly in our field like it doesn't feel like it's an accident that that much respect to what's on the page would end up getting uh used regularly that you know that just they would stick with it without a doubt i mean david simon is a journalist at heart and those words on the page was what had to come through most of the time there was I think Wendell Pierce mentioned only two ad-lib lines that yeah. he knew of throughout the course of the show. And they had script supervisors making sure that people were staying on top of the pages and staying on top of those words. That Dominic West, one of his things was that half the time he didn't even know what McNulty was saying. He was just <laughs> reading what was on the page. Is that because the the dialogue was so dense, or is it, is it a cultural difference? You know, him being British versus this world set in Baltimore. I think it was more that the dialogue was just so dense that even you know somebody from the United States may have had trouble sticking <laughs> with it, especially at the beginning. Yeah, I mean, it's there's a lot of detail in there. Season four with with the kids, like. It's always affected me anyway, but once you become a parent, and, and both of us are parents, like watching anything where kids are put through turbulence through no fault of their own, it's just like a gut punch. And like you're seeing basically the adults from earlier seasons grow into themselves. And like there's this like hope, like helplessness as a viewer. Like you watch like Namon has a chance, but there's no optimism for Randy or Dookie or Michael. And it's like watching a statistic play out in front of you. It's just, it's brutal. Yeah. Yeah. And seeing that Naaman is the one that gets that chance and just how random it is that there's no rhyme, reason or purpose that, okay, you're the one who makes it. And, and knowing that that's how stuff often does work out in life. It's really sad. That's why I think that season is so important. 
What else in particular, too, when it when it comes to that season, the the importance of it stands out? Because I think a lot of people would agree with you that it might be the most important season. But there's this whole big misnomer that African-American kids or impoverished kids who can just pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Right. That, okay, if you want, if you want better in your life, just do better. And that's how you'll be able to make it out. Um, when I don't think it's a realistic portrayal of what these kids are up against in a lot of these instances where if you see the show, you see that going to school isn't a real possibility for Michael because Michael has to take care of his little brother and he has to make money somehow. And so, you know, he lines up with Marlo and and Chris and Snoop. Or you see what happens with Randy where Randy is just this kid who has this megawatt smile and is an entrepreneur selling these snacks at school and then gets caught up in something out of his, out of his hands. And, gets Brandon into a snitch. I mean, or down the road. You know, I didn't even get into Dookie's most saddest of oh, them all. But it's it's gut-wrenching. Yeah, it's all just gut-wrenching. I mean, it's just, how do you pull yourself yourself up from that? Or, I mean, and also, and also, too, why should you have to? You know, like the, the idea that, okay, maybe you can. I mean, obviously, there are people who escape that. But shouldn't there be more focus on trying to remove the circumstances that would make kids have to do it in the first place. That's what you would hope for, right? And that's I'm sure that's one of the arguments that The Wire was trying to make and show throughout that season four. This is a really subjective question, but I, I'm curious what you would what you would answer. Who do you consider the most underappreciated character on The Wire? Oh, there's a lot. <laughs> I know. I mean, there, there's so many great characters, but by definition, when there are that many great characters, some are going to fall into the shadows a little more. So I'm going to say Proposition Joe. Okay. Played by Robert Chu uh, for several reasons. He was a guy, as a character, he represented the differences in the generations. Um he was like the the older conscience of the the generation that was kind of stepping out of the game, where the younger generation of the Marlows who came in basically had no sense of code or decorum. Mm-hmm. Um, so he he was in the game, but he had his own sets of principles. Um, another reason he had all these great killer lines. Yes, uh, he does. Uh, well, one of them was. Uh, when he tells Omar that thinking about a man like him disturbs his sleep or something like that. I know I botched the quote, but it's a very memorable line. Um, And another reason off the screen is that the actor who played Prop Joe, his name is Robert Chu. He was like, he was a legendary acting coach for youth in Maryland. So he was uh, just instrumental in those season four kids learning their roles and being able to uh, act with the depth that they were able to act with. And he, Robert Chu, unfortunately passed away in 2013, so I wasn't able to talk to him for the book, but the impression that he left on the wire is really great and far-reaching. Yeah, I mean, he, he really, every scene that he's in, you, you're you just 
incredibly arrested by what he's doing. I mean, he, he really was. It's not surprising to learn that he was an acting teacher just because he clearly knew how to act. Um, what what did you learn most? Wait, wait, no. you got to give me yours. Oh, mine? Okay. You know yours, yes. Cuddy. I, yeah. I, there's just, there's something really lived in with Chad Coleman's performance. Like there's this soulfulness and this wisdom. He's weary, but he isn't broken. And he's like, he's so determined not to be broken by his past. And like, you know, he's developed this sense of accountability and, you know, he tries to help these kids escape the life that he had, but he does it without judgment towards other people. And like you, it feels earned when Avon lets Cuddy out, no strings attached and wants to do right by him with the gym. Like, you just there's this sense of decency to Cuddy without being syrupy. Like you don't ever forget that he's done bad things. And there's so much that Chad Coleman, I think, brings to the role that makes you understand how he evolved into this place without actually seeing it. And I just I, I just think he was a just a wonderful character. Yeah, one of my favorite quotes in the report in the book was Michael Kostroff, the actor who played the attorney Levy said that after watching Chad Coleman play Cuddy, he went up to Chad and he was like, man, you don't say a lot, or, or Cuddy doesn't say a lot, but there looks like there's just an orchestra going off in his head. Yes, yes. That's a great way <laughs> of putting it. I thought that was like, yeah, that was such a great way of putting it. Yeah, I mean, there's, there's, there's a lot, and it really is a lot of it a credit, I think, to Chad Coleman, because, you know, it's a, it's a good role, but, you know, as it's pointed out, he doesn't say a whole lot. Like, he has to, he has to do a lot without saying a lot, and he just, it's really well done. And there's a lot. talking about his influence off of the screen, so the, the season four kids, they were, most of them were nervous about taking on such a big role on this show, because, the Wire was gaining in popularity at, at about the time they got cast to play the season four boys. And what put a couple of them at ease was that uh, was that Coleman had played on Broadway, and then in another show, he played the dads of Tristan Wilde, the actor who played Michael Lee, oh, okay. and Halito McCollum, the actor who played Naaman. So seeing his face around set, help put them at ease that's great i mean it's it's it really felt like reading the book like there there was a true community that formed on this set which is just i mean beyond being nice to hear it it feels like a community you know created by the community that they were looking to portray you know it's the community of baltimore and and from that a community among actors and on this set is born and that's that's cool to hear yeah um what did you learn most from doing this book, like not necessarily about the wire, but just like either about like ways of thinking or b- bigger issues. Cause th- there's a lot, I mean, there's a lot, there's a lot that really is covered by the wire. And there's a, there's a lot of really, I think deep opinions shared in this book. Uh, well, just personally, the, one of the funnest things for me was being able to talk to these novelists about how they go about crafting their story. I know this isn't going to be univer- universally, applicable um doesn't matter man. that was just fun to me i mean hearing how george pelicanos or richard price goes about writing a story and something the pelicanos is really resonates with me just after doing a couple books and knowing how laborious of a process it is he told me that when he's writing a novel 
when he's on page say, 57, that's his entire world's focus right then, is just writing what's on page 57 and getting page 57 done. And when you're on page 57, you can't be worried about page 187 or whatever is going to come in the future. So just basically saying that all the pieces matter. I mean, actually, that, that isn't even bad advice for life. I mean, like if you want to consider your life like sort of a page at a time, it's, it's yeah, actually not it really terrible is. advice. Oh, stay in the moment mantra. Yeah, and we, we both heard a lot of that uh, covering athletes. Um, I, I can't help but notice, too, that this book comes out at a time where, you know, Get Out was arguably the most talked about movie in 2017. You know, nominated for Best Picture. Black Panther may have already locked up the most talked about and, gro- you know, highest grossing film of 2018. It's It's a cultural event in and of itself. What do you think this says potentially about what audiences are looking for and, and how we, you know, the larger we can interpret stories centered around people of color. I just think that all, all stories have their audience and all stories uh, are worthy of being told and that you can find an audience for, for all stories. I think a lot of stories of color have been uh, denied. What was a joke that Jimmy Kimmel made at the, at the Oscars that he can remember a time when women and people of color couldn't be, wouldn't be considered to, to lead for lead roles yeah. in movies. And, Oh yeah, that was just last March. <laughs> exactly. Like so, I mean, and that's even 10 years after the wire ended. So I think, you know, we're still making strides, but there's so many wonderful stories to be told that are still out there. And I mean, hopefully, it, it signals a you know a universal universality of just of audience, but also too like the idea that you know these these stories aren't that hard to relate to if it's you know any story if it's not directly part of the culture that you grew up in, you know, like there there's universality to any story. Yeah, and you know, truthfully, that's one of the reasons why The Wire struggled to find an audience while it was on air. Um, Andre Royo, who was an incredible interview, pointed this out that he said, you know, normally when three, four black people are on a, a television screen at the same time, if you're not black, the first thing that's going to, that may go through your mind is that this story isn't for me. Right. Um, and I think if you stuck with the wire, you, you found that to be contrary. And then I guess the last question I'd have for you would be, what does it mean to you as a black man and a black writer? to help share the importance of a story like this, of a show like this? Well, honestly, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to do it is because I feel that The Wire is still relevant today and still applicable to a lot of the national discussion and discourse, probably more so today than when I pitched the book and wanted to start writing it or start working on it. So to be able to get it out there it means a lot. And if it's able to help introduce you know, more people to the wire, then that was a, a sincere goal and writing the book as well. Yeah. It's kind of depressing by the way that it, it feels even more trenchant now than, you know, when it first came on the air, like 16 years ago, like it, it speaks to the power of the show, but it's, it's a little bit depressing. Yeah. And I think that's one of the uh, blessings and, and curses that David Simon has with the legacy of the show. 
Yeah, well, the book is All the Pieces Matter, The Inside Story of the Wire. It is a fantastic book. I, I would say even if you didn't watch the show or aren't terribly familiar with it, you you will find it really interesting. Again, Jonathan Abrams, man, really happy for you. Really appreciate the time. Thank you so much. Anytime.